Mark, in a series, trying to answer this question, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks this turning point question uh, to his disciples, to Peter, and it gets answered. And so our goal today, is, as we walk through this series, is to answer that with sharper and sharper precision. Who do you say that Jesus is? Uh, it's so, he's so different in understanding who he is that people will understand what he says, but they have no idea who he is. It's like that person who you've never met before and you have this idea and you attach all these ideas to this person and when you actually meet them, you don't know who they are. So you've created somebody. So we really want you to know who Jesus is. I want to know this. Um, This has been so fun to study. And if you're a Christian that's been studying the Bible for all your life, great. The Lord has something for you here today. Man, if you're just checking this out, if you're a seeker, And if you are interested in what scripture has to say, um, you are welcome here. We want you to push into this. We want you to consider these words. Because this Bible is more than just narrative. It's more than just biography or history. This is God's words that he's presenting to you that we might know him. So don't forget that. So as you read this word, understand that. As we jump in today, we'll be in Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. We've learned a lot about Jesus. Uh, He's a king. Uh, He's a priest that that gives us everything that we need, as Sarah said in her prayer this morning. Uh, But today, he's going to give us something different, as usual. But before we go there, I need you to think about smell. That was weird. (laughs) Don't even like that word. Um, This idea that, uh, and here's why. When you smell something, especially this time of year, right? When you smell a cut lawn... For the first time, what do you think of? Anybody? What? Allergies. Okay. What's wrong with you? I think about baseball. When you, th- when you smell chocolate chip cookies, what do you think of? Mom, thank you. When you smell old books, what do you think of? A library, awful college years, what? These are called olfactory memories. Smell like nothing else will produce a three-dimensional image in your mind, and it will bring feelings about the feelings you had during these times. So they will bring you to emotional memories about those events quicker than anything will. It'll help you remember what you love and why you love it. Um, It's why we we hang that new car smell thing in our car, because we like to remember when it was a new car. Maybe it never was. Um, But we we like to do that. It it plays a part in our life. Something's going to happen in this text today that it's going to, it's designed to give us that memory, this olfactory memory, just as we were there, a fragrance that's put forward today that is meant to teach us who Jesus is. And it's powerful. It's, it's great. Just remember this. Um, the emotional bond that you're meant to have with God is love. That sounds very trite, but I mean love. You mean that God so loves the world, la, 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 la? No, no. I mean love, that you love him. That your relationship with him is one of knowledge and truth and love and action. But you love him. This is, what, this is what we're supposed to be doing here, um, learning to love God. And how we see that in Scripture many times is in this way. You know what you love by willing your, what you're willing to let go of in life. And when you do that, you know what you're holding on to. Because you always hold on to what you love. 
right? So we're going we're gonna to walk through that together. Now, before we jump into the scripture, uh, no, this is called a Markin sandwich or a Mark sandwich. Um, Mark does this a lot in scripture like he did last week. Um, I think it was last week where we talked about the fig tree in the temple, then the fig tree again. Today he does the same thing. So the text starts out just to give you a heads up on what to watch for. He talks out speaking about the chief priests who've pretty much had enough of Jesus. So they're making a plan to get rid of him violently. So he talks about speaking about that. And then he goes in and talks about something that happened during a dinner with Jesus had with his friends. And then he swings right back to talk about the chief priests again. So here's what you're meant to see. You're meant to see a greater contrast. There's no longer any hope in Mark that there's going to be a reconciliation between who Jesus is and who people think he is. There's those who are beginning to trust him and love him and and hang on to his words. And there's people who are like, we got to get this guy out of here. And so there's this irreconcilable, uh, or, or uh, that's, that's a bad word. How about this? Unreconcilable divergent that's happened between Jesus and, his, and those who are following him and also those who just can't stand him. Nobody really receives him in a neutral way. So this contrast is growing, and, and this is kind of a turning point. It gets darker you feel the weight of it from Jesus' perspective. So let's jump in. Mark chapter 14, verses um, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as we read these words together, we are making your prophecy true. This stands out as a turning point in your ministry. And we need to know what it means. Lord, we ask as we open up your word today that you would open it up to us, Lord. By the power of your spirit, might we behold its treasure. Might we see your beauty. Will you bring us to faith, Lord? So we give you this time and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is what stuck with me this week. Jesus evaluates her actions in a way that he doesn't do with many people. He says, what she has done to me is beautiful. He calls her out 
as beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing to me. So I have one goal today. Why is that? What is it about this woman and what she did to Jesus that was beautiful? And if you're listening to the text, here's a few things. And we're just going to walk through three of them. One is that her actions are motivated by love. Now we, we need to understand what that means, yes. And secondly, um, her actions are energized by worship. There's more than just affection going on. There's more than just, oh, I like being around you. She's motivated by love. She's energized in her actions by worship. And she's willing to let go of everything that she has, except she will not let go of Jesus. You ain't going to do it. So let's walk through that together. I'm captivated, I'm captivated by this. Not by what she did, but by this. She, she loves Jesus like I'd, I'd have never seen before. And this is amazing, right? So let's talk a little bit about the scene and a little bit about the setup. So there is a tension here in its building that we've said. Uh, the religious leaders are saying this. Who is Jesus? He's a threat. And know this about yourself. You will see Jesus a threat. If you want to stand before God in, in your own righteousness, if you want to have your, your own way of standing before God without receiving from him, he is not, he's going to be dangerous to you. And they very much did not want him. So he's a threat. Um, and they plan on getting rid of him. Now, this is inopportune time to do that because it's the Passover festival. People are in town. The place has grown exponentially during this season. So there's a lot of people there. There tends to be a spirit of righteousness, right? So they're ready. You know, I mean, there's some nationalism going on. They're celebrating um, being liberated from bondage from Egypt. And so it's just bad timing. So they know if they're going to do this, they have to lay low because Jesus is building a following. Stealth is everything. So this is where they're at. The timeline is probably Wednesday, probably somewhere in there. About two days before they would celebrate Passover with the feast, and then that would launch right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would go for seven days. So they're there. So they're, they're, they're celebrating. They're ready to begin this feast. And here's the setting. This is what's beautiful. Jesus and his disciples are in Bethany. Now, a little bit about Bethany. That's where Lazarus was, right? This is where Lazarus and his sisters live, which plays into this. But Jesus is in Bethany. It's about two miles east of Jerusalem. It's kind of on the southern slope of the Mount of Olives. He's there at invitation of somebody, Simon the leper. We don't exactly know who Simon is. Probably somebody that Jesus has healed. But what is he doing? He's having dinner with friends. This has got to be so good. Um, he's with his friends. We know by looking at some other accounts of this that Mary was there, Martha was there, Lazarus was there. Remember, Jesus resuscitates Lazarus after he's dead, which causes all kinds of trouble for him. Simon invites them all together and his disciples. So this is just dinner with friends. This is not the Passover feast. He's with his friends. And how much is this needed? Like the day before, he had just been cleansing the temple. Super stressful. People are really confused about what he's doing. Um, and you know that he's stressed out. So he's, he's relaxing with friends. Um, why do we say that Mary, this is Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Well, when you look at the account of John, John just says it. John chapter 12 too. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, if you look at all the gospels, they all have this story in there to some degree. Uh, we know that Matthew and Mark and, and John are very similar. They pretty much show different aspects of the same event. Luke shows one like this, but it's different in this way. It's at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and it's in Galilee. It's not in Bethany. So 
most commentators, and I would agree wholeheartedly with them and say, this is the one that Matthew and Mark talk about. This is also one that John talks about. So we know who's there. This is the Mary that was the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus, which plays in. So keep that in the back of your head. This is low stress. This is away from the crowds. There's no confrontation here. Um, They would have been relaxing. And they didn't sit at a table. They would recline on pillows and eat, either off of a very low table or off of a mat. This is ancient Near Eastern custom. And then Mary, who's probably the little sister of Martha, makes a scene and just ruins the whole night. For everybody. Maybe for you, too. She ruins everything. Don't don't little sisters do that? Can I just say that? Just kidding. I'm the littlest. Um, she comes in, she takes this alabaster flask, which is like a perfume bottle, but it's made out of translucent rock, basically. Has a very thin neck at the end, no handles, breaks it, and she comes up to Jesus, anoints him. What is going on here? All right. What is, what is going on here? And Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Why? One, she's, she's motivated by love. Now, love makes people do strange things. You, would you agree with me? Oh, that's dangerous. Well, I once knew a man who left his hometown to follow a woman he was in love with, and he ended up marrying her, right? People make, we, we talk, last week we talked about a mama bear. She climbed up a tree to just chase away a possible threat to her cub. Love will make you do things that you wouldn't normally do. But I'm going to tell you this. Mary's actions are disturbing. If you really know what's happening here, it's, it's borderline inappropriate. There's, a, there's a, an affection here that's going on between Mary and Jesus that is disturbing. It makes everybody uncomfortable, and it makes people irritated. Now, it wasn't sexual in nature. This is not what I'm talking about, but it's overly intimate. You don't do this at table. She's, this is an act of worship for her, and it bothers everybody. And we've got to ask this question, why does she love Jesus like this? And maybe we turn around and say, why don't I love Jesus like this? How come I don't respond to his presence like this? Listen, everybody is misunderstanding who Jesus is. Mark in chapter 8, or Peter in chapter 8, kind of gets the idea. He says, you are the Christ. Yes. At the end of Mark, in about a month, we'll get there. We see that the Roman centurion gets it crystal clear. He knows who Jesus is. But Mary gets it. She knows who he is. She knows he's Redeemer. She knows he's Lord. She has clarity. Right? When Peter says, yes, Jesus, you're the Christ, that's a little bit like saying, hey, is, is Bill Gates worth it? You know, Bill Gates, does he, does he have a lot of money? So yeah, he's, he's okay. He's well off. No, he's obscenely rich. It doesn't get the full story. Yes? So when Peter says, yes, Jesus is the Christ, it's true, but we're, he's missing it. Mary has clarity. She doesn't have all the pieces, but she knows Jesus is her Lord and his Redeemer. There's a backstory here. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? Mary and Martha and Lazarus were friends with Jesus. That's kind of a miracle right there, right? He's 30 and single and has a bunch of friends, right? He loves them. Jesus loves this family. 
Lazarus gets sick. Everybody knows it. They try to get Jesus to come. He doesn't. He's like, you're not going to get this, but it's for God's glory. Yeah, but he's going to be dead, Jesus. So Jesus goes, and Lazarus is dead. Martha, probably the older sister, confronts him. Then she sends Mary. Mary, you, you just can feel the heartbrokenness. John chapter 11. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother wouldn't have been dead. Thanks for nothing. Where were you? This isn't how friends work, Jesus. Where were you? She's been really disappointed by Jesus. Very disappointed. And then she's seen him pull her brother out of a tomb with his word. Lazarus rise. She knows something about Jesus that almost nobody is getting. She has clarity in her relationship. He's redeemer. He has the power of life and death in his hands. He is God with us. Listen to what he says and do it. She worships him in a right way. Motivated by love. She is motivated by her love for God. Have you ever made anybody comfortable in that way? Have you ever made people uncomfortable in the way that you talk about Jesus? They're like, oh boy, we've got one of those in the office, right? Have you ever done that? Maybe you are weird and maybe, maybe that's on you. But, right, we can do that as Christians. Jesus saves a lot of weird people. We are weird people. He doesn't usually save people that are, are, that are wonderful and wise and smart. He saves awkward people. But have you made people uncomfortable by living as though, because you honestly believe it, that Jesus lives and that you know him and that you pray to him and you talk to him and you hear from him and you know his people and you know his kids and you live as though he is the one to worship. Mary is motivated by her love for Jesus. This is one of the reasons he says, he checks everybody and says, uh, before you stand the word, I'm going to stop you. What she has done to me is beautiful. And you're going to have to live with that. Secondly, her love is energized by worship. Let's push into this for a minute. Now, what is worship? It's a very churchy word. So we got to always unpack that because we think we know what it means. It means what you put first in your life. Can we just say that? It means these are things are self-evident to everybody. What do we worship in our culture? Well, maybe happiness. If I walked up to you in a crowd and said, you shouldn't live for your own happiness. How would you respond to that? Most people say that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever had. I've ever heard. Everybody knows you should live for your own happiness. We don't defend it because it's self-evident. It's an expected God in our culture. So how do you order the things in your life? That's what worship does. Worship will reorder what you love. And it always produces conflict in your life. Because what you put first in your life, what you're, you're calling ultimate, what is a non-negotiable for you, like, you can give me anything in life. It can be as hard as you want, but you do not take this away from me. You do not take this relationship from me. You do not take my resources away from me. You do not take my affirmation or my success. God, you can have everything, but you cannot have that. See, and you're worshiping God. It completely reorders everything in your life, and it will produce conflict. 
Now, Mary's always getting yelled at by somebody. I perceive this about her. Either her sister's yelling at her because she didn't help her cook dinner, or she's getting yelled at because she did this at the wrong time and wasted a lot of money. She's just one of those people who's always getting yelled at. But her priorities are absolutely in order. Now, the funny thing is she gets called out for her priorities. Mary, what about the poor? Jesus loves the poor. Maybe you should have kept that and given it to Judas because he holds the purse and we could have done something with that. You don't like the poor, Mary? And they scolded her. In other words, you're wrong. Go sit down somewhere else. And Jesus vindicates her. Now, while we're talking about the poor, does Jesus say, the poor don't matter? They're always going to be here, so who cares? No. Did you listen to his words? He said, you can do good to them whenever you want. Oh, were you doing good to them this morning? Oh, okay. So maybe you don't care about the poor as much as you think you do. But he obligates his disciples. No, you you should do good to them. But I've got hours to live. She's doing the right thing. In fact, if if, if you think you know how to treat the poor and you don't know how to treat Jesus, you don't know how to treat either one. Just going to throw that out there. But you cannot love Jesus and not love the poor. Mary's doing the right thing and Jesus vindicates her. And they're beautiful in this way. She exalts Jesus above everything and everyone at that table and she doesn't apologize for it. She is focused, friend. I would die for this kind of focus. So how does worship reorder our love? Well, there's a, a, an old um, dude by the name of Augustine. Uh, he's uh, a theologian uh, and he, he was very early in the church, and he helped us understand a little bit about love. Um, as a 19-year-old, he was reading all the classics, and he would read Cicero's Hortensius, and like he's 19 years old, and he is just drinking this up. And here's what he couldn't get over. There's a part where it says, um, it's kind of a paradox, it says, he who sets out to be happy, but the majority of people are thoroughly wretched. So here's what Augustine couldn't get over. Everybody wants to be happy, but nobody is. So what's the problem? So he sent his life out to understand this. And he didn't really come to Christ until his 30s. So he gave himself over to religion, to philosophy, to success, to sex, to everything. And he finally meets Jesus in his early 30s, and it completely changes his life. But what he understood is this— He taught that you are not fundamentally shaped by the information that you have or by what you know or by what you believe or by what you do. And especially for us, by what you feel. He says those are all real things, but they don't shape your life. What shapes your life is what you love. You are are just completely built up by your desire. It will lead your life. And he lived, right? He lived and he understood this in real time. And when you disorder love, right? This is, this is false worship. When you take something that's not ultimate, say a relationship or your job or your success, and you elevate it to the place of this needs to happen in my life for my happiness, what you do is you tear down a good thing and you also ruin your relationship with God. You cannot worship something and God at the same time. So this brings chaos into your life. When you love less important things more and the things that you should love completely, you love less. So Mary knows this and she loves Jesus. 
It's that simple. So, sin will disorder your life. It's not a mistake. It's a romance. And you are in love with yourself and the future version of your life. Whatever makes you happy for now. Listen to Augustine. You're going to be led away by that. And you will never know Jesus. Listen, love will drive your actions. This is, this is what drives her. She's worshiping Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, um, in that gospel, we see Mary and Martha. And they're, I'm not, I can't remember the scene, but Martha is cooking and Jesus is there, probably the disciples. And she's like all over Mary because Mary's hanging out just listening to Jesus and she's like making dinner. And this is just real. If anybody ever says the Bible doesn't deal with real problems, you've never read it. It's better than TV. Come on. Luke chapter 10. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Hey, I've heard that before. Is that pretty much? But Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Yes, we are too. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. Mary has chosen to worship Jesus. She's chosen to sit at the foot of Jesus and to receive from him. And her actions here by anointing Jesus are the last straw for Judas. It's like, that's it. He's going to ruin everything. Why? Nobody really knows. The text doesn't say but Judas gets paid for it. So ironically, after saying, hey, we should give money to the poor, he runs off and gets money for himself by turning Jesus over. But she is energized by worship. So why does she? Why is what she does to Jesus beautiful? Well, it's motivated by love. It's energized by worship. And she holds nothing back, friends. She lets go of everything, but she will not let go of Jesus. Hear this. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand. The sense of this text in the original language is everything that she holds in her hands, she let go of. It's not she did what she could. It's she let go of everything that she had to worship Jesus. This is the sense that we get. This is the posture that Mary has towards Jesus. And she gets accused of wasting her life and wasting resources. Jesus is, he tells us you should be encouraged by that. When people revile you and say, man, you're wasting your life. Don't, don't do that. Don't go to church. Don't be one of those kind of people. You're going to waste your life. You've got, you've got more sense than that. See, what you're willing to let go of will reveal what you're holding on to. So what, what did she let go of? Let's just look at it. Her reputation... You know this stuck with her. Oh, she's that? She's that gal? <laughs> Don't invite her. She's weird. Right? She lost her reputation. Will you lose that? She lost resources. Pure nard. You know what that is? It's an extract from a root in India. It's a lot of money. I mean, they give the value in there. 300 denarii. It's probably in today's dollars. Well, in DC dollars. It's probably thirty to $50,000 with a vessel and the nard. That's like parking for a year here. 
That's a lot of parking. I shouldn't make jokes about this stuff, but really, this is so much money. And you know, she didn't take the top off, she broke it. You usually did that when you're going to put it in with somebody who's willing to be buried. So she loses her reputation, her resources, and she is vindicated by Jesus. John says that the fragrance filled the whole place. Do you know what they remembered every time they smelled nard in the future? Worship God alone. Worship Jesus alone. He overcame death. He overcame death. And he remembered Mary. And here we do that. So love is not pragmatic. It's never efficient. It's never practical. So what kills worship for us? Finding your worth and your significance and your security in every other God you can. Your accomplishments, this is big for us, friends. The things that you acquire, if that's not enough, our experiences, right? Our relationships, the things that we love to do, the things that we love to be. Listen, that will tear you away from the living God. Do not let them do that. And also this believing that you can stand before God on your own because he just wants me to be a good person. Listen, the gospel is not a set of ideas that you live by. It is 100% a relationship that you are engaged in. We are reconciled to the living God through faith. If you understand it as a set of ideas or a worldview, you're missing it. This is how Peter responds when he first sees Jesus. But when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do you ever think that way with God? Do you understand what sin does, your sin, to the relationship that you have? Um, The more I read this, the more I have to understand this. I have absolutely nothing when I stand before God, nothing. I am so empty handed, you don't even want to know. And that's the way it works, isn't it? When you look at scripture, usually the people that realize they have the least love Jesus the most. So let me ask you a hard question. Do you feel like you need Jesus like this? Do you feel like you need Jesus like she does? Do you feel like you understand, as that song said, both your worth in Christ, but your unworthiness before him? Because you've chosen to worship other gods. You've chosen to give your life to other things. You've chosen not to listen. Can you, can you live in that world where your righteousness is in Christ alone? Do you feel like you need Jesus like she does? Man, I don't. It really bothers me. This is the goal of worship. They would know Jesus like Mary knows him. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, he's a king. And in kings in Old Testament times are usually anointed on their head before they take the throne. Signifying God's spirit and God's election on their life. And she breaks a flask. Don't miss this because Mark is all about this. He wants you to see that Jesus is the Christ. And she anoints him on his head with this costly perfume. John picks up also that she washes his feet with it. Jesus is going to rule, but he's being anointed for burial. 
Do you know that? 